flying in the tall grass. Wish I had a pilot and a podcast. Wish I had a strong donkey that can haul ass and travel with portable speakers playing bars scats. I wish I had a million dollars. I wish I had a million albums. I wish I had a million problems. That way I couldn't pinpoint all one million outcomes. I wish I found a genie lamp. I wish them girls gave me them sugar like Beanie Man. Yeah. I wish I was a comedian in late night sitcoms syndicated on TV land. I wish this well had water in it. These kids are stealing all my pennies. Focused on my wealth. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish for help. It's like, it's like, I wish, I wish that every time we love and it feels just like this. I wish, I wish that every time we do it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish that every time we love and it feels just like this. It feels just like this. It feels Cats and kittens. So this is your host Brianna Joy Gray, and we're back with another episode of the Debrief. I really enjoyed today's episode. I've been teasing it for you for a little while. I recorded it before the Thanksgiving holiday, and have been saving it up. It was my discussion with Claire Mate, Claire Mate rather, uh, about uh, her book, uh, which is a longer title than this, but uh, about the austerity to fascism pipeline. You know, I've been saying on the show for a while now that so many of the conversations uh, about how U.S. does its own version of imperialism requires a better understanding of the economic systems that do the dirty work that, you know, sail ships, sailing ships and, and conquistadors and such used to do. Um, and it obscures, you know, how we continue to dominate and subjugate m- much of the world. And so I really appreciated getting into it. With Clara, uh, and again, I recommend people listen to the interview she did on macaroni and cheese about a week before to fill in more of the specifics about what was in the book. Um, I want to know what you have to, uh, what you think about this episode. But a warning first: we're only going to go for an hour tonight because we're starting late. I'm a little tired from traveling. Um, things were really backed up at the airport, so it took a really long time for the lift to arrive. Blah blah blah. Nobody cares. The other reason is that for some reason my phone is just like not charging, and I'm a little afraid I'm going to get cut off in the middle of this. Um, so I'm going to randomize the calling a little bit to try to get some folks in since I know I can't stay for as long as I would like. So don't despair if you are toward the end of the queue. So, uh, Serene, what's on your mind? Can you hear me? Loud and clear. Great episode. Uh, two things. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Two things uh, uh, came to mind. One is... This um, literary idea that actually an ex told me about because it's heavily involved in this book, The Sexual Politics of Meat. It's this literary idea called the absent referent. And that really resonated when she was talking about how they don't even say the word capitalism Mm. in the school because it's just like the water that we swim in, sort of. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, that... I think paired with like the Obama clip mm-hmm. and just the assumption that like, Hey folks, this is all we got. Like, what do you want to like take some food from the store spend? Like mm-hmm. I, I just thought it's like very, it's, we've reached a very sophisticated form of the okie doke, which is like, we yeah. don't even say the thing. And if you say the thing, you're like, what, what are you talking You know? I mean, yeah, honestly, Trevor Noah, even even saying the thing out loud, I mean, he did say the thing. He did right. say, he did question Obama's framing of 
um, what did it, humanitarian capital, um, compassionate inclusive capitalism, capital. inclusive capitalism. That's right. Yeah. He, you know, and pretty explicitly said, but well, aren't we on a trajectory towards something better? Or are we really settling on capitalism as the final boss here? And it, it forced Obama into a place of discomfort that you don't often see them. Cause I think you're right. They have gotten so sophisticated at this game that people at his level are rarely confronted with having to explain why we should all be so satisfied with such a deeply unequal status quo. And I think it's even more complicated for someone like Obama who has been able to, I mean, run for office and then be president and then continue to present himself as someone who is an underdog who came from unconventional and more middle-class roots and who was this, you know, a, had a, has been raised by a single mother and is a, the first black president and all of this narrative that's supposed to, it's built into it an understanding of the inequities of our system and, and, and that fact that he was supposed to be a change agent. So to see him in particular sit there justifying to another biracial, half, you know, half African <laughs> yeah. man who, you know, it's also extremely affluent and privileged, obviously, but seems on some level to have better politics and to be closer. I don't know if it's because he's South African and because they have such approximate freedom struggle themselves there. I don't know what it was, but it was this really lightning flash moment that I couldn't believe when I saw it. And then I couldn't believe that I didn't really hear anybody talking about it. Yeah, it kind of seemed to go under the radar. Maybe he's, it's like, I wonder if it has anything to do with him, him leaving. I mean, I know he always mm. does those like, well, this wasn't like one of those after... You know, people post those clips of him, like, talking to the audience, and he, mm-hmm. he seems more loose, and, mm-hmm. like, he had a whole thing about Kanye, but, yeah, I don't know, he's, he's, uh, been on one lately. Yeah, for sure. And, yeah, go ahead. Um, uh, actually, I forgot. Well, the other just thing that stuck out was, man, I gotta read that Shock Doctrine book that I've been <laughs> meaning to read for years now, and also, do you, uh... Like, would you want to get Naomi Klein on to talk? So I was thinking about that today because I don't know if you saw on Twitter, but people are uh, very upset with her. Oh, no. Um, so I've asked her, by the way, I asked her on the, the podcast well over a year ago, like in the fir- within the first six months of this podcast existing. I think it was around the 2020 election. I asked her to come on mm-hmm. and um, she declined. And at the time, I wasn't sure. I don't want to impute any... Um, you know, reasons, because I, I don't I don't actually know, but it was around force the vote, I think, or around the time I had just, I had to, you know, distance myself from Bernie, said I didn't support Joe Biden and stuff. Mm-hmm. And there were some people who were more proximate to the campaign who I felt might have found that to be inappropriate, might be wanting to distance themselves uh-huh. from me. But I was kind of surprised that she um, didn't want to come on. And now people are mad at her. I'm trying to find the tweet. Sorry, I'm a little distracted by it. Wait a minute. Naomi. Naomi. Um, she basically was tweeting about uh, the Chinese protests. Yeah. Um, and you know, cheering on um, the protesters as as uh, standing up for you know freedom against author- authoritarianism and all of this stuff. And people were were arguing that that's very inconsistent with her. Um, yeah, she. Her attitude toward the protest against harsh COVID, you know, shutdowns and stuff in the United States or the Canadian truckers protests and the like. So she tweeted, here it is. Popular decentralized uprising in China against authoritarian rule has uh, been so long in coming. 
The international left, such as it is, should stand in clear solidarity. And people, you know, across the left are having their takes. Yeah. Danny Haifong says, color revolution leftists like Naomi Klein never miss an opportunity to repeat Cold War talking points when unrest occurs in countries that the U.S. is targeting for regime change. So, yeah, I, I and people are making jokes about like, oh, have you read this book, Naomi? It's called it's Shock Doctrine. You should probably look into it. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, this is against her entire like political, you know, d- doctrine. Like mm-hmm. she's she would. Man, I, China is such a huge blind spot for uh, uh, everyone, I think. Yeah. It's, and honestly, I, I, again, knowing my ignorance level genuinely you know generally try not to uh weigh in but you can't ignore that there is definitely a war push from conservatives conservatives are making a lot of hay out of being anti-war in ukraine but yeah very focused on starting world war three with china you know you, you can see these trends going but it's also true that just because america's doing an imperialism i i can't say with clarity what the protesters are you know, how widespread that sentiment is, what people are actually demanding, how much they are against all of the COVID lockdown measures or just some because of that fire and the incident of people getting killed. I mean, I undoubtedly there's so much more nuance than I'm for or against the protests or for or against the lockdowns. Yeah. I I don't know nearly enough too. I just saw some things here and there that are like part of it was they were promised certain uh, raise you know, mm-hmm. wage increases during COVID times, mm-hmm. which ha- have yet to materialize. And yeah, it's a complicated protest. Yeah. That's all yeah. to say. I would love to have Naomi Klein on. Maybe I'll reach out again, but I'm not overly optimistic about her <laughs> saying yes, especially given that she's getting all this heat right now. Yeah. All right. Well, that's yeah. Good. Well, thanks. I'm glad you enjoyed the episode and thanks for calling in, Serene. Yeah. Bye. All right. Keep, keep the faith. faith. I am going to hop right over to Isaiah because I think you were in the queue and didn't I didn't get to you before so how are you doing this evening Isaiah hey I'm good how are you I'm doing well thanks what's on your mind hey I um this was like a like a small section of the episode and like first of all I really enjoyed it but oh, I'm um, glad. The, the, like the one section where you all like alluded to how the Bernie campaign was referencing um, a time where capitalism was much more compassionate and like pro worker and all mm-hmm. of that, and so I'm wondering like as somebody that like worked for the Bernie campaign, like how do you reconcile like like your own involvement like with with that project versus like some of the things that you discussed today, where it does seem like if Bernie had become president like we would have been sheep herded back towards like supporting a more capitalistic framework and so i'm just wondering like it's a really good question so you know there 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 are all kinds there's like a spectrum of people when it comes to you know there's there's a spectrum when with respect to how you characterize various kinds of activities as reformist or revolutionary and even though those are kind of the two categories, people feel differently about them. And even some things that you might say are reformist, some folks say, well, because people are in such critical need, you can't just not do, you know, they're, you know, people do mutual aid, people do what they can in their local communities because, you know, most people draw the line somewhere before, like letting people starve that I could help 
just because if people were more desperate, we could get the revolution happening faster, right? And so I think mm-hmm. I think there's an argument for, you know, at the time, at the time it did feel like Bernie was very revolutionary to me. And maybe I'm stupid and naive, and certainly I am relatively new to all of this, but the no, people involved, I mean, even people who are very critical of Bernie now and who are very clear-eyed about the limitations of what Bernie was able to accomplish still wanted to participate in him winning. The feeling was that the concrete material changes that he was advocating for were so meaningful and the likelihood of something bigger, of something more revolutionary happening was so distant regardless. Remember, this is also before COVID and the, and the kind of shift in the mindset that that created, mm. that it was worth getting involved. So you, you're Chris Hedges and you're, you know, you're, um, Shama Sawant's and, and all of them were still rooting for Bernie and participating for Bernie, even <laughs> while they were at the same time, very like open about what they felt the limitations of it were and how he was just a democratic socialist. And this wasn't like a real revolution. And I still do think obviously, like I would like it if we were more like Sweden today. Now the mm-hmm. question is, do I feel, would I feel guilty? Would I feel culpable if I, participated in us getting to basically Sweden. And the effect of that was that we didn't get past there for like 200 years longer than we would have ordinarily. I don't know that I would have felt bad about that, to be honest, because the state of <laughs> the state of people right now is just so bleak, honestly, that I, I would have, if I really truly knew we could get, you know, an, an actual uh, health universal health care system and not a health insurance system, if I knew that we could have a basic standard of living for everyone in this country, if I knew we could get our prison population emptied and actually have psychological support systems and drug treatment s- systems in place for people, that would be such an enormous improvement that I don't, I, I, you know, call me a reformist, but I think I still would have been proud to have participated in that project. Cause it, I mean, yeah, it's hard. Um, I mean, this is, this is the whole problem with accelerationism, right? Like it's very, it's, it's morally sticky because we never know what accelerationism is actually going to work, you know, how bad things are going to get. And it's like this trolley problem of, is that blood on my hands? And am I doing this all for not at the end of the day? I don't know. What do you think? Um, I mean, I, I think that I'm like sympathetic, like t- to your point of view, like for the most part, right? Like I, we don't have health care. Things are like extraordinarily dire. Like my mom's a nurse. And like, mm. so she was working through our COVID and it was, terrible like she saw firsthand like what the systematic disinvestment and the healthcare system like like how that affected like the pandemic response and Mm -hmm. how like nurses were treated and like what conditions were like and all of that and so like yeah I'm, i'm i'm sympathetic to that but like at the same time like this conversation is reminding me of your interview with noam chomsky and i i get that like these are very two different things but when you were talking with him about like well his his line of argument was well climate change is very bad but that's and... the thing biden truly wasn't even going to do anything about climate change <laughs> and the writing was on the wall to begin with so it's like the downsides right, right. were like nil <laughs> like we knew that biden wasn't going to do like anything at all with respect to those very important subject areas and he hasn't this is true. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, like, I, I hear that. I, I really do hear that. I'm not saying, like, conclusively I know how I feel about it. But, like, the other thing is I do think that, like, 
Bernie, well, part of the argument that was made about Bernie, even for people at the time who were like, well, he's not that revolutionary, was he he seemed, even if even if he his personal aspirations weren't as lofty as ours might have been, there was this feeling, and I don't know if it's true or not, but there was this feeling because of his background and the statements that he made in his youth and the politics that seemed to have come out over the course of his life, that mm-hmm. if if there were a movement that pushed him beyond, that he was pushable in a way that Biden, I think it's very naive to think he's pushable because Biden mm-hmm. isn't being di- directed by what people in the street say or what voters say. He's being directed by what his donors say. And and Bernie had a had a, just like a different mechanism in place. Now, once you get in there, God knows what they do to you. I don't know if they round up all your grandkids and put them in a bunker with like laser <laughs> pointed at their heads. I don't know what they do. I don't think anything's beyond them. So who knows what Bernie would have done and how pushable he ultimately would have been but that also is like the feeling like there's some difference there is also making me feel like it's not necessarily true that if bernie got in and disappointed us we would all have like rolled over in the way we did for obama because also we learned something from obama i would like to think you think so like i Uh, not everybody but uh, like us Don't, don't you think don't you think that like if bernie had tried to like unwind his org I mean, like, like he did, and we all complained about it. But like, if he were president and he had unwound all of the, the burnout and all the organizing apparatus, we would have been like, "Why are you doing that?" and been suspicious and called it out in real time. No, yeah, uh, definitely, yeah, I think so. Like, I think generally, like, we're very skeptical of like leftist politicians like not living up to their promises or like previous statements, things like that, previous actions. Like we see that with like the reaction to AOC and mm-hmm. um, yeah, no, yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I, I guess like, I'm just imagining like say Bernie became president and mm-hmm. say that he wasn't pushable. Like, like I wonder if that would create a situation where people that, might have been sympathetic to like leftist ideas, leftist ideologies, like see that as an abject failure and like no longer a route like mm. we need to go down and like whether or not, or and I'm wondering if that like would push people away from, from I, this I think sort it's of possible, but I kind of think we're there. We're in that place with Bernie having run and lost, mm-hmm. you know, I, I kind of feel like we're also like, there's only so much room between, ah, oh, we got Bernie elected and he still didn't save the world. And oh, we tried to get Bernie elected. He, has, he had the, was the best chance we ever got at a social, socialist president and he still didn't fail. So I guess we can't save the world. Like there's, I, I think the people who are kind of feeling cynical and detached and, and wanting to give up on electoral politics as the future of the left are kind of there regardless of Bernie winning right. and disappointing or just losing and disappointing us in his, his loss and his failure to fight as hard as we would have liked. And I, I, mean, I don't, yeah, yeah, go ahead, yeah. go ahead. No, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. I, no, no, no. You, you, please go ahead. I was, I was going to repeat myself. <laughs> no, I was just going to say, yeah, that, that makes sense because like, that's the sort of transformation that I had. Like Bernie's like, I'm, I'm in college now. And like Bernie is the reason like why I got interested mm-hmm. in politics in the first place. And like simultaneously, like the destruction of the Bernie campaign twice in a row is the reason why I am no longer interested in electoral politics. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. it's, yeah. But if, he had, if he had won, I mean, it is an interesting thought experiment because I think, you know, his, some of his weakness on foreign policy would have become evident. There would have been a lot of wake up calls for a lot of us in the movement. 
I, I often joke about how I would never have wanted to be the a press secretary for a president because then you have to start lying all the time every day. And, <laughs> and you, you know, we, we would be looking at someone on the podium, not named Brown and Joy Gray, but somebody else at the podium, um, just telling those lies. And it would be, you know, it would be really like demoralizing to realize how much of it is just the nature of the beast and how much of it is the nature of the man. Um, and I think it would in some ways speed us up. I mean, I, I don't know. I guess I think it, it would be so apparent, the contradictions, the hip hypocrisy would be so apparent if it were coming out of Bernie Sanders that in some ways I don't know how effectively it would cheap herd us in. I mean, maybe a lot of people, look, would be making excuses for him, just like we have this divide on the left right now where we have so many people who carry water for squad members, et cetera, and are basically refuse to criticize them for anything. So those people would be there. But again, we're already there. <laughs> like we already have that camp of people and it didn't require Bernie winning for them to take that posture. This is, this is true. Um, okay. Well, I don't have anything else to say on the issue. Um, thanks again for the episode. It was like fucking phenomenal. Like I, I really have to say like, I study econ in college, like, that's my mm -hmm. other major, and, like, yeah, now that I think about it, like, capitalism, like, as a concept, like, was mentioned in one of my classes, not even at my university, but, like, at a separate university that I was taking a course at, like, yeah, that's, I didn't, I never really, like, considered, like, how insidious that mm -hmm. actually is, and mm -hmm. how that's likely framed like my way of thinking about like the issues mm -hmm. um so yeah thanks again for the episode yeah thank you Isaiah. i appreciate that uh let's keep, go the back to the, keep the faith keep the faith let's uh go back to eric but also I, what isaiah was saying um reminds me of the fact that i never took econ but i had a law and economics professor uh for torts and corporations in law school and he opened our corporations class basically talking about all the built-in presumptions in economics and like the idea of assuming a stapler and assuming that uh, ability to pay equals willingness to pay and all of these like basic foundational principles around kind of a, a rational consumer that econ econ economics is built upon that are just so obviously facially false. Um, and can he explain to us that in any normal e economics class on your first day or any, sorry, normal corporations class on your first day you're told that the whole point of corporate law is to protect the most vulnerable constituency which is shareholders and that is never really questioned in any way and he asked us to consider whether we thought there were any other constituencies in the world that were perhaps more vulnerable than shareholders <laughs> and like we're raising our hands and he's like come on guys you know like kids trees poor people animals the mentally ill Historically marginalized groups, <laughs> you know, like literally everybody. Uh, and it really blows my mind. Like, I, again, I've never taken another corporations class by anybody who wasn't this lefty Marxist law and economics guy. Um, but it, 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 that lesson of what the normal lens is has always stuck with me. And like, as I've said before, that professor in those classes were core to my radicalization. But um, Eric, not my cousin Eric, what's on your mind this evening? Hey, how are you? Um, well, I'm not sure. If, I mean, I know you have a short time, so if you want to skip past me, that's okay. Because I had, unfortunately, I had to miss your Thanksgiving calling that you did. And I know sometimes you talk movies on here, so I wanted to know if you uh, over, 
through the grapevines heard about the Quentin Tarantino conversation about like the marvelization of Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on that because I had some thoughts on what he said and how he kind of, even someone who's actually into making movies had com- to me completely missed the point of what's going on with movies. Well, I want to hear your thoughts. Well, um, when he talks about like there's no more movie stars and he kind of placed the blame on Marvel movies saying that Chris Evans, like Hugh Jackman, they're not the movie star. It's the characters that they play that are the movie stars. I kind of disagree with him on that because if you track movies, the movie star, the idea of a movie star to me has been dying out since before Marvel movies hit it big. So Mm -hmm. I would say the last time you really saw movie stars. And when I say movie star, I mean someone, if you put their name on a movie, it will sell big. It will Mm -hmm. do big numbers in the box office. I find that that started dying out like in the late nineties, early two thousands. Um, just like supermodels. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah, it's. I was, we were, I was having this conversation, a version of this conversation with, I think my mom and we were trying to figure out who like, who's the young, hot black heartthrob in like a movie. So if you go back to like the nineties and you have your like Shamar Moore's, um, and your Morris chestnuts, um, and you know, what's his face with the, the light eyes who's still running around here. You know, you, you had, like, these guys. And then, of course, you had, like, blockbuster guys like Will Smith. But if I try to think of someone who's, like, my age or younger, who's, like, a hot, who's, like, the hot black guy in Hollywood, I can't come up with anyone other than Michael B. Jordan. Pretty much. You know, like, people like Anthony Mackie, like, he's out there, I guess, but no one thinks of him. I'm the only person who apparently thinks that Anthony Mackie is cute, as I've been told repeatedly <laughs> by my friends who drag me through the streets over this. So, yeah, obviously that's just generalizable to a broader audience uh, outside of black actors. But when you see the same movie stars, like they just remade, um, they just remade some movie with uh, uh, Julia Roberts and Richard Greer, I think. Oh, uh, Julia Roberts and um, the guy from ER was. uh, Oh, George George Clooney. Clooney. Yes. Right. Like they're just still doing this with the same people from 30 years ago, (laughs) you know? So it just, it does feel like, I don't know why it is that people don't become iconic in the same way. I will say, though, that there does seem to be a new little brat pack coming up of, like, Timothy Chalamet and Florence Pugh and some of Mm. these little WB girlies who are, like, Zendaya. And we'll see where that goes. But those people feel like stars to me. Like, I'm old, so it hurts my pride to say this a little bit. But, like, you cannot deny that these people are very... They, they carry films. Timothy Chalamet carries films. He's a star. Yeah, so I would say that there's no longer that era where, where um, like in the 90s, if you put Will Smith's name on a movie, that movie was going to succeed. Mm-hmm. I think we're past an era now where if you just put Timothy Chalamet in a name in a movie, that doesn't mean the movie is going to make its money back that movie also has to be good and you also have to market it well. You can no longer simply rely on... There's the age of simply relying on a movie star, like the Arnold Schwarzeneggers of the world, to simply make your movie profitable. I think that era is over with, and I think main reason that era is over with is with the advent of the internet and with the advent of so many other things taking up our attention span. So, for example... Mm-hmm. Now we as an audience, we have more uh we have more access to 
what goes into making a movie, who is making the movie, all the little dirty details about a movie. At the same time, you have TikTok, you have all the social medias, you have video games, you have streaming. So our attention span is also being diverted by is also being diverted in so many different areas. And at the same time, we have more information about these movies, which is why I think that as the movie star, the idea of a movie star went down, you saw directors and writers, um, ex, uh, you know, ability to sell movies go up because now you have a, like a large chunk of people that will, like, I will never go see a movie simply because a star is in it. I will okay, okay, okay. Yeah. I'm going to challenge that because I have no interest in seeing this new Timothy Chalamet movie based on the plot, which is apparently that him and that um oh bones cute, and all yeah that cute little black girl from um Tyler Ross uh huh that eating eating people and all that like yeah. that is not a plot that would appeal to me two little two little Gen Xers running around mm-hmm. Gen Zers eating people however. I have never been disappointed by Timothy Chalamet. <laughs> yeah, but I would say you've never been dis. I would say that Timothy, don't get me wrong, Timothy Chalamet's name is going to get bones and all a certain amount of money. Mm-hmm. I would say if, let's say, if Christopher Nolan was directing Bones and All, mm-hmm. Christopher Nolan's name, I think, would guarantee Bones and All. Okay, I, I think that money. that's true, but I mean, and I, I think maybe your point that directors have more more to do with what people the opinions people um you know the the, the how attractive a film is going to be before they, people actually see it but mm-hmm. I, I don't think that, that was you know there's always been like ron howard steven spielberg i do think that the director has always mattered to a certain degree but the, the, but the, that's a little bit of a different conversation right than the conversation about whether or not there are movie stars who can drive people to a film. So I agree with you that directors can also drive people to films, maybe more today than they used to before. But I'm not in, I'm not entirely sold on the idea that movie stars are dead, that Marvel movies don't make movie stars because I I know Chris Hemsworth through Thor. You know, mm-hmm. I know um that Loki guy through Loki. I don't know him in anything else, but if I see him I recognize him now and I would see a movie with him in it. Like I know um, what's his name? Chris Pratt became a bona fide action hero through the Guardian of the Galaxy movies from being a schlub on Parks and Recreation. And so I, I you know, Tarant, you know, Tarantino, you know, he's problematic. <laughs> <laughs> but like, I, I, I both agree. I both agree that there are like not the big, big, major blockbuster stars the way there used to be, but also that there does seem to be like this niche. It's it's like how advertising is different now. I mean, they still are selling us stuff and we're still buying crap we don't need. But instead of turning on Saturday morning cartoons and being bombarded with Toys R Us commercials or whatever, we go on Instagram and I get very specific niche advertisements from people who know I like dainty gold jewelry <laughs> and a certain kind of chunky sweater. And they are like zero and they know I like a vintage lamp. And they target the shit out of me. And it's not big companies that you've ever heard of before. And it's different, but it's, it's, and it's more diffuse, but it's mm-hmm. still there. And I think that, that that's the same way. It's like these Timothy Chalamet, all these little, these smaller stars, they are able to bundle it and package it in a way that is still very, very appealing, even if it's not quite as centralized as it used to be on like one human being. 
Yeah, I would agree with that. But um, one of my main issues with the uh, what Quentin Tarantino is saying mm-hmm. is I take umbrage with this because you've heard a lot of people, especially older directors and older movie uh, makers say this thing. They're trying to blame Marvel and the Marvelization of Hollywood on the um, the current state of movies in Hollywood. And I kind of disagree with that because my issue with that is one of the reasons why you have Marvel movies, you know, being so prolific is because they are the big blockbusters of the day. And mm-hmm. at the end of the day, Hollywood system exists in a capitalist system. So you can't not be surprised when movie, when big studios want to make these things. And also I take umbrage with that because, you know, we do live in a time where um, there are a lot of movies being made. Mm-hmm. People just don't go and see because... Um, the guy you had on, not like I think two talk, uh, t- um, two bad faiths ago, Ross Birkin. Birkin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he talked about this and he kind of agreed with um, Quentin talking about the marvelization of Hollywood. And he went on and said that, you know, Hollywood movies don't make, you know, Hollywood studios don't make other types of movies anymore and they don't market them. And I'm like, well, one, you're wrong because Woman King was a movie that had a 50 to $60 million budget. Um, it had was released in over 3,500 uh, theaters worldwide, which means, it's, you know, once you start getting a wide release movie is considered a movie that releases in a thousand theaters or more. Or more. So this did three times that. Comparison, mm-hmm. uh, a big Marvel movie would release in about 4,100, 4,200 theaters. So not too far off of that. And still people and it was and it had a strong marketing budget. I mean, most people knew about it. And it did it. well? And it didn't do nearly as well. It did well domestically, but did not do well mm-hmm. internationally. Then you have something like Breaking, which came out with, um, which was a really good movie with um, John Boyega. I would highly recommend I've that. I've never even heard of this movie, Breaking. Yeah, um, Breaking. It actually came out in the summer, late summer, August, with John Boyega. It's based on a true story um, about a... Um, former uh, military person who had PTSD from his service and he got Ooh, screwed uh-huh. over by the vets and he just wanted his money from the, the VA and he ends up holding up a bank. Okay, this this sounds like I'm happy for him. I like John Boyega as a human being. I'm rooting for him. I like how hard he goes for black women. However, that sounds sad. <laughs> yes, yes. It is a sad I don't movie. invite sad films into my life. <laughs> But, yeah. um, but I'm, I'm happy for him. But and apparently whole... Nicole Berry's in it too. And I love me some Nicole Berry. Yes. It's, it's, it's very underrated. Chance, I do recommend it. It's a really good movie. <sighs> okay. Um, I and, might see it for Nicole Berry. Yeah. And it kind of sucks that he's probably not going to get any nomination for it. And instead I got to deal with people. Because I also saw the movie Steven Spielberg. This is going off track. Because mm-hmm. I recently watched Steven Spielberg's The Fablemen. And I thought it was good. Oh, I, went, I meant to see that. I was gonna thought it was literally like thirty minutes too long. Um, oh, really? Did not like Michelle Williams' performance in it. Thought it was a little bit all over the place, a little bit extra. Paul Dano was really good in it. I thought the first half, I, the first act, could have been. I, it. I, I don't get Michelle Williams. Someone in my life that I'm close to adores her, and I like. I think she seems like a great person. Like I think she seems nice. This isn't like personal, but I find her to be not interesting on the screen. Mm. I felt that way in. Uh, oh, I can't quit you. Bro- broke back. 
I felt that way in this weird little indie movie that she did with Seth Rogen. Every time I see her, like, I want to like her. I think that she was like a blah, Marilyn Monroe. Like, I don't get it. I agree with it. And uh, one thing that's going to suck is not because, you again, you know, I'm a big Steve, Steven Spielberg fan, but he's probably going to take up a best directing spot. And the Fableman is probably going to take up a spot is the uh, the best movie of the year. And I'm like, I don't think it deserved that. I would put much better movies in front of it, like The Woman King, like Smile, which was a great horror movie that came out earlier in the summer. Um, but it is what it is. Like The Menu, which I just saw, which I thought was really fantastic. And I highly recommend people who, especially I think this audience would kind of enjoy The Menu because it does deal with this idea of the haves and the have-nots. Um, mm. You know, the servers being the people in the restaurant serving, you know, these uppity, um, self-righteous people and all that type of stuff. It's a really good, uh, like, psychological thriller. Mm. But, yeah, I just wanted to kind of just get, you know, talk about that because, you know, I don't always get to talk about movies like that. In- no, that was interesting. I'm looking through the Fableman now. I don't know why they also keep casting shikses in these roles. Um, non non Jewish women in these roles as like Jewish mothers in these movies. Because I'm I'm also watching um that new series with the guy from the Social Network. I'm so sorry, guys. My recall for names is so oh, terrible. Is that and I know good? that makes it not an interesting conversation on your end. But you know what I'm talking Jesse Eisenberg. I'm watching that new series with Jesse Eisenberg, and they cast Claire Danes as his wife. Yeah, is that good? Um. It has everything I'm looking for in escapism. However, I find Jesse Eisenberg very difficult to enjoy. <laughs> like, if, if anybody else had been cast other than Jesse Eisenberg, I would be really digging it. Mm-hmm. And Claire Danes, I love her. She's, like, doing a great job. But, like, I just don't understand. Like, these, all, they're all, these are both movies that are, like, very focused on... Judaism and the and the mm-hmm. cultural Judaism of these families, and they keep casting all these freaking chicks as the, as the moms. I'm not going to get into that. Somebody else's battle to fight. If you <laughs> want, let me tell you, if this were black, I'd be I'd be angry about it. If these people were black oh and they were God. this, I'd be angry. Uh, if you want to jump off that show, you haven't watched it yet on Hulu. The Patient. The Patient. Yeah, The Patient. Okay, I don't have Hulu, but I think I might have to buy it because I was watching it when I was at home for the holiday. Uh, Now I'm halfway through all these things. Oh, I've been watching Andor. I think I also have to buy Disney now so I can finish Andor. Okay. How do I, I, I wonder, you know, how do you like Andor? I think that'd be up your alley. I am loving it. Yes. I have, I, because it doesn't have a lot of the space wizards. There's no space wizards in it. And it deals with, you know, rebellion and obviously a strong, you know, oligarchy fighting oligarchy and that rise up. Okay, I'm glad you died. you're enjoying Andor. I really, I think it's the best Star Wars show they put out. Yeah, that's what my brother says, and I think I agree. Also, we're going to move on for, from movies. Just relax. I'm tired. Also, <laughs> uh, I, shout out to Serene. I loved Barbarian. I saw it a couple of weeks ago. It's so flipping good. Oh, just to say, I'm going to leave after this. Um, I saw Barbarian, loved it, but that movie would lit. I, one of the things I love about Barbarian is a lot of people who watch Barbarian they loved it, and they did. I'm not sure if anyone picked up on the how women are centered in that movie very well about the men not listening to the women, and at the mm. end of the day, the women is always right about the thing because each time the man, the what she tells them to do something, mm-hmm. they don't listen mm-hmm. and it cause trouble. So she always a step behind. I still mm-hmm. think an idiot for going down after that guy, but. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That that first guy, you know, the guy who's in the house when she shows up, he was on my last nerve. I gotta say, I did not regret him getting killed because there was a point at which they made it out. 
they were like standing in the living room with the car keys in hands and he was like no 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 i gotta go back down there or something and i was like you know what Mm -mm. no absolutely not absolutely not even her going down that tunnel to begin with because she first opens the door she's like nope and turns around and walks away and then for some reason it decides to go back in there I just I can't with some of these people. I, I mean, but no, it was it was a good movie. And people should see it, and I won't I won't make this I won't make this um, barbarian discourse. Although my friend, I watched it with my friend Joe from Sweaty Podcast, and we were joking that we could start a whole new podcast just about barbarian, and each each time interview a different expert. Like we're gonna do, we're gonna have like a gender studies professor <laughs> talking about barbarian, and then we're gonna we're gonna have a real estate agent talking about barbarian and talk about that angle of it. We're going to have, you know, like we're going to have a gentrification expert come on and talk about barbarian because it was, it was very layered and very good. But look, thank you for the, the frolic and detour, Eric. I've enjoyed this. Even if everybody else is mad. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Keep the faith. Um, let's hop around. Let's see if we can find some new faces. Maria, what is on your mind this evening? How are you doing, Maria? It looks like you're unmuted, but I can't hear you. Uh, you can't hear me? There you go. What's on your mind? I hear you. No, I, I apologize for not asking. Did you have a lovely and restful holiday break? I hope. Oh, yeah. It was good. Restful, I don't know about that. I feel like, you know, you need a vacation from your vacation. But um, <laughs> it, it was it was lovely to, to be home. It was the first Thanksgiving in Cleveland um, since my mom moved to Cleveland. So it was really nice to have more space and to, you know, to test out the new house under some like, you know, real holiday conditions. And it's the first time that my aunt and grandmother have been able to join uh, in a while since their health is, you know, my grandmother's health has declined. So that was really nice. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that, that, you know, certain homecomings are always worth, I don't know, celebrating. How about yourself? How was your holiday? Mine was more restful than yours. <laughs> uh, but no, I, I enjoyed the relaxation and the time with family. And it's kind of you to ask. I appreciate that. Well, look, what's what's on your mind this evening, Maria, beyond the holiday? Well, I was really drawn in by the title Austerity to Fascism Pipeline because that's, that's kind of, you know, eye-catching and thought-provoking. And, uh, you know, the more and more we talk about the monopolization of corporate corporations uh, that goes unchecked, are we not experiencing the same exact thing with our political parties being monopolized unchecked? Because I think as dissatisfied as people are, even with the constant barrage of propaganda, we're so hungry for third party candidates. Mm -hmm. But, you know, Is there not a correlation between the monopolization of political parties and the monopolization of corporate America? I mean, I think there absolutely is. It's frustrating sometimes when I'm on Rising because Robbie will say something true about how government isn't working. And my perspective will be that 
the reason is because government has been captured by corporations. Uh, politicians have been bought. Um, we see, we're seeing all this discourse right now about Sam uh, Bankman Freed and, um, you know, FTX and, you know, how he was such a prolific Democratic Party donor. But the other side of the story is that they've been giving huge sums across the aisle, just like corporations do, so that they win no matter who's in office. And he has bought both Republicans and Democrats who are supportive of the regulatory regime that would be more lax and enable him to not be regulated, basically, right? And so, you know, Republicans, very frustratingly, conservative outlets are painting this as a Democrats, you know, were tied up with this colossal failure story, which is true, and I have no interest in defending Democrats. But it, the, the real tragedy here is that it's a bipartisan kind of corporate capture. Um, and, you know, that's when we, when we say we have a, an oligarchy, when we say we don't have a democracy, when we say we cite that 2014 Princeton study that shows that um, there's, like, no relationship between what the people want in polls and what government delivers – but there's a huge relationship between what corporations want and what the government delivers. That's what we're talking about. And so I think you're right. There was this huge appetite for third parties. When Matthew Ho came on Rising, the conservative audience was like very yes. enthusiastic about him. Yes. But you don't get very many people like that and you know, given a platform in the mainstream and the conservative versions of Matthew Ho, for the most part, well, um, aren't actually free from corporate influence. They haven't taken a no corporate dollar pledge and they're more performatively independent and he got he got nasty unsolicited calls from people claiming to be green party it's like don't don't you not want to take votes away from the democrat candidate and they wouldn't identify themselves i mean matthew ho just had all these challenges to just stay on the ballot everybody Mm -hmm. in the wide world was trying to block him yeah for sure. For sure. We had him on with the Jill Stein talking about the shenanigans to get him off the ballot. It's it's absolutely ridiculous. I'm glad he was able to overcome that. Obviously, you know, we all want to see third party candidates getting more of a vote share than that. But, you know, when they make us spend so much of our money, time and energy, just staying on the ballot or getting ballot access, you can't be that surprised about the results. But, you know, I think you, your diagnosis is right on. Yeah, I, I I don't know what the remedy is in this current environment. I really don't. You know, and it's really strange. I, I paid my property taxes in one lump sum last month, and when I went to pay them, the property valuation office in my county said I was deceased. Mm-hmm. And I, well, they still wanted my money, despite being deceased, apparently. But when I emailed them and I said, I'm still kicking, uh, can you correct that? They're like, well, we're real sorry. We got a return piece of mail. And it's like, well, the piece of mail I have in my hand says I'm deceased and I got it. So all it takes is a return piece of mail to cat- categorize me as deceased. And the same office, the county clerk's office that corrects my, you know, collects my property tax is the same place that has my voter registration status. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I was, 
I emailed them back. Thank you for correcting that, even though they didn't. I was like, does this affect my voter registration status? Mm -hmm. And they never replied to that. It's nuts. So what do you think? Were you able to vote? Did you you register when you checked? Oh, for sure. Okay. Uh, But that was a little bit after the fact because voting is early November and my property tax comes due late November. Mm -hmm. So, I I don't even know what to say. It's mm-hmm. so weird. Yeah, well, and I'm I, not mm-hmm. I'm not ready to jump on the you know voter fraud bandwagon. It's it's just I I just want to say that you know just pay attention, folks. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, look, Zed Zed Jelani, who I know uh, provokes dramatic reactions from people. Fair enough. I get it. Believe me. I get it. But um, he had a, an interesting tweet, uh, a kind of a, I think, accurate tweet, where he quote tweeted a statement that had been made by a liberal newscaster about the um, Arizona uh, races and how long it took for the results to come in. That basically paraphrased was something like, there are irregularities and slowness because of systemic problems with our vote counting system, but without more, more evidence demonstrating that there's actual fraud, we shouldn't jump to that conclusion. And Zed's point was that that's a perfectly reasonable statement to make about Arizona. It's also a perfectly reasonable sta- statement to make about some of the things that happened in Georgia, but liberals basically will only give that kind of a, hey, let's just wait and see if we have evidence, caution, when it's about Republicans arguing about voter fraud, and they won't have that kind of, oh, well, let's just see what's going on, which of these are regulators and which of these are um, uh, voter disenfranchisement efforts when it's in a Democratic state and the presumption is that black people are being disenfranchised. And there's a reason for that, right? Like, obviously, we can't just erase the whole multi-century history of preventing black people from being able to vote and some of the you know real issues that have gone on across the country, but in a state like Georgia, where you're seeing disproportionately high numbers of people coming out to vote, and all of the lawsuits have been thrown out that Stacey Abrams brought, like at a certain point, you know, like the the case that is being made in this particular instance for that having a meaningful effect on the outcome of elections, you know, if we think it's inappropriate for Republicans to be crying voter fraud and trying to overturn elections, then are we getting a narrower and narrower? distinction between the language that Democrats were using and the languages Republicans are using. Um, and I think it's, it's an interesting, it's a provocative point, but I thought it was an interesting one. And of course it was setting some people off, but um, it certainly is true that there are irregularities and there are systemic problems that keep people from voting. And the people who are going to be affected from it are going to be people who have less time on their hands, who are less, um, you know, who are marginalized in other kinds of ways. And that's those people are going to lean left and that's going to be a problem. But, you know, whether it's purposeful or not, unfortunately, some of, so much of it is just people making horrible mistakes and us having such a raggedy, out-of-date system. Yeah, yeah. It, I agree entirely. And I, my only point, I would never do a single thing to contribute to propaganda out there because I don't trust any of it. I'm just saying that it's it's good to be mindful and pay attention 
about, you know, if somebody tells you you're dead and still wants your money, mm-hmm. that that's weird. Yeah, the uh, bureaucracy is a real problem. But look, I'm going to try to get to a few more people, but thank you so much for calling in, Maria. No, no, no. Uh, one, one tiny last thing. Mm-hmm. I, I just, you were, you're talking about a current really strong black character in film today. And mm-hmm. I just well, wanted to say. I was actually saying a hot. <laughs> My specific well, argument was I'm looking for a hot black male character, but go ahead. Well, I, I think he's yummy as well, but John David Washington from Black Klansman mm-hmm. and a couple other films, I, I, I think he fits all, checks all those boxes. I respect that opinion. I, however, do not share it. <laughs> I don't think, I think that um, his father, Denzel, has more charm uh, and... Um, beauty in his fingernail that unfortunately his son has his whole body. I just think the man is not a compelling actor. And I also, he's, you know, he's not, obviously he's not unattractive, but he's just not my type. But like, I, I appreciate it, but I just don't think he's going to be anybody. If you go back and look at St. Elmo's Fire, Denzel Washington, look at him in his 20s and him flashing those, that, that chiclet smile at the screen and seeing that twinkly little eye. Like, oh, that, that's that was um, a Brat no. Pack movie. Sorry, not is it not what was the, what was the show that Denzel was on in the um in the maybe early nineties? Oh curses. I can't um, remember either. But any anyway, I'll let you move on, Bree. Thank you so much for your time and conversation. I'm I'm always grateful. Yeah, of course. Oh St. Elsewhere, sorry, not St. Elmo's fire, St. Elsewhere. Ah, that's the one. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Maria. I appreciate you calling in. Thank you. Okay. Keep the faith. Let's go to Brian. What's on your mind, Brian? Hello. Hey, what's on your mind this evening? Uh, I guess I was um, going online with the whole duopoly conversation and uh, just thinking about maybe looking towards a third option. I don't know. I was just thinking about maybe Andrew Yang and where you think about the Ford party. And I know a lot of people are kind of afraid that it's like another, I don't want to say sheepdog attempt, but cause I saw him on um, Sabby Sab's podcast, I think last week or maybe the week before last. And she was trying to make him drill down on some policy for the Ford party. And he was very dodgy when it came mm-hmm. to it. But his defense was basically that he just wants to be on every ballot and he doesn't want to go too far to the left or too far to the right and to alienate himself and like, I guess, kneecap the party before it gets going. Yeah. So I saw a little bit of that and I've talked about this at length, so I'm not going to spend too much time on this, but I, th- I'll make the same point that I made on rising and I made on this show on, on bad faith, which is that I don't actually care. I disagree a little bit with Gab, uh, with Sabby on this. I don't need him to commit to policies. I need him to commit to not taking corporate money. I need the whole point of the po- of the, of the party if the whole point is independence from the things that have toxified the two major parties, you cannot set up a, a party that has all the same vulnerabilities and expect it not to succumb to those issues. And he will not do that. He will not commit to making it a corporate free party. I, I like, I can disagree with Republicans about the way they go about the world, but I, you know, there are so many decisions that are so obviously driven by 
helping the rich in corporations that on some level, like there's a lot of gains to trade between the left and the right to the extent that they actually are independent. Like if you are not tethered to corporate money, then you have conservatives and Democrats or sorry, conservatives and um, leftist liberals, whatever on this, on this party who could all be for a wealth tax. That's not like necessarily a partisan issue. You can be about, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, um, anti-imperialism. Like there are all of these things that if you are not taking Raytheon dollars, if you're not, you know, if you can unshackle yourself, you're going to get a lot more simpatico and you're going to get, even if they're not the solutions I would want from conservatives, you're going to get more responsiveness to their base and their base has a lot of ideological ups and downs. Look at all the red states that supported a $15 minimum wage. Look at all the red states that supported that, that knocked down efforts to restrict abortion. Look at all the red states that had these great, um, there were a couple of great like um, work um, uh, workers laws on the books that got, that came out of the last election cycle. So that's my issue. And until he rectifies it, I am not going to be that interested. Although I support him trying to support ranked choice voting it just it's it seems it's frustrating because it's a great effort. He's putting a lot of energy and money into this, and I would That's like to be able to better. be relying on it and, and for it to be successful. But it's got this found, foundational flaw. Yeah, it's kind of weird that he put so much effort into it and not just try to refute that, like nip that in the bud right away. That's really strange, actually. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay. Well, look, thanks. I appreciate the question, Brian. Thanks for calling in. No problem. Keep the faith. Keep the faith. Jonathan, I know you'll get us back to the episode. <laughs> what is on your mind this evening? Ah, hello. Hello. Yeah, I like. I know I, I touched on it briefly last time, but I didn't want to give any spoilers or anything so that people could get the full sucker punch to the gut impact that it has. And it really, like, had everything. And, you know, especially... Uh, if people get a chance to read the book, like, mm-hmm. like it had some things that really even shook me up. And I had, had done a lot of reading on the history and the economics. And, uh, you know, I particularly agree with, and I try to follow people that are of her particular school of thought, like political economy, this multidisciplinary approach, as opposed to pure economics. But, I never realized, and she kind of really nailed it, um, you know, the, the actually traced it back in history, uh, the degree to which that separation was done on purpose. Mm-hmm. You know, all of the negative effects of these people trying to consider economics separately from politics, separately from history, and not able to make those connections was not mm-hmm. an... And, you know, especially when she got into these two dual tracks, like the the liberal and the... Thank you. That's it. Uh, the liberal and the fascist, in the fact that they were a difference of degree, not kind, mm-hmm. and the the same, basically the same policies and the same policy objectives, just with different methods of implementation. Uh, it like all of that stuff, and her tracking it back to the present in such a clear way, like really just made clear so many things that I was unsure about or had questions about or you know didn't understand the context of. Um, I mean, it really, it, it really was powerful. Yeah, I, I agree. And I do, I do think that the purposefulness of it, the intentionality of it is a really key point. I don't know. I, it, it, this came out a little bit in the Ryan Graham episode, but 
you know, I was, I was telling him how to say the true thing that you've observed makes you look crazy. Like yeah. people think it's so conspiratorial for you to say, like, I think that Biden actually didn't want this. And I think that there's so much more of how things play out that is by design um, than most people are willing to acknowledge. And I think that we're able to, like, accept the strategy of con- our contemporaries the more we understand how strategic some of the messaging choices have been and, and the economic choices have been in the past. I mean, I think that's exactly it. It's I've seen, especially lately, just a few too many actual conspiracies literally unmasked. Mm -hmm. And it never happens like the crazy people think it does with like one or two guys in a room going, wahahaha. It's usually a collective, collaborative effort between uh, people with shared interests, kind of the way, you know, that, uh, you know, these things can work in a good way if we, you know, organize and and uh, act in our own class interests. But, uh, I mean, they do it in this very secretive way. And in a lot of cases, these things are hiding in plain sight. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're hiding. Inflation stuff. Yeah. They're just out here fully saying. <laughs> we need yeah, to the oh, my God, he admitted. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> That's it. And they're hiding. Like, in a lot of cases, they are trusting in the fact that there is enough obfuscation that your average person who's too busy trying to survive is not going to sort through it or find out what this, that, or the other means to determine what's going on. And they're basically playing a numbers game that is never going to get past critical mass. Or they, or they and, realize, yeah. or they, they, they believe there's no alternative. So even if someone doesn't like what the Larry Summers of the world are saying about, um, you know, their cure for inflation. Someone had a good clip from a political article where some economist was saying, you know, this is the only, this is the only tool that exists to address inflation. Yeah. I sent that. That was, uh, I I retweeted it from, yeah, it was from, uh, it was originally from Marshall Steinbaum. Okay. Uh, he found that, but yeah, he's, he's also, he's a good economist trained with, uh, a lot of the people that we like and is real big on the student debt thing. Um, but yeah, yeah so, he, I mean, he that's found that a, one. That's such an important point. And that is why, that is why when I saw that Obama clip as I was prepping for the Clara interview, I was like, bingo. Because that, the work that Obama is doing and saying, oh, you can't just, Sven can't just take things off the shelf. You know, narrowing the vision of what an alternative looks like to some ridiculous counterfactual about people just, you know, stealing from stores in Sweden. You know, that, that gets people in the mind frame where they don't even... You don't even trust their gut feelings about how wrong the status quo is. Right. It's that, that kind of straw manning, the gaslighting, uh, all of that stuff. And, you know, there was also that uh, I think the other interesting thing was, man, you really like you really nailed it toward the end, too, when she was talking about her next book project, because, um, you know, the the kinds of stuff that she was making reference to you characterized it exactly right and what the concern was. And in essence, so many of these uh, very powerful people who were responsible for a lot of the misery in the Great Depression uh, essentially were willing to go along with a lot of uh, the New Deal project because they always intended to hijack it and reverse it later. Mm -hmm. And, you know, essentially uh, uh, FDR was able to get them to comply, at least in the beginning, by saying, look, it's either this or revolution. The torches and pitchforks are out. You choose. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's basically where they were. But when you when he, they ran that little interference, 
and kept those people intact, uh, essentially they, you know, took it apart a piece at a time. It, before FDR's body was even cold, they started doing it. The second Red Scare had started. Uh, the HUAC stuff and the and the loyalty board investigations had started. Like, they started peeling it apart immediately. So, that you know, again, it goes back to by the 70s, uh, the, a lot of people like to take shots at Ralph Nader for, for criticizing the New Deal coalition and helping to bring it down. But the fact is, by that time, it was already completely captured by large yeah, corporations. I'm to get this man back on the show. Every time I'm home, by the way, Ralph Nader ends up coming up because – my mother is Ralph Nader's biggest fangirl. It's embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> this woman loves her. My mom treats the Consumer Reports like it's the Bible. She's like, Ralph Nader, <laughs> Ralph Nader taught us what was safe. Ralph Nader was the only one who was explaining to us, blah, 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 blah. Ralph Nader was the only one I put it, blah, blah, blah. So I, I feel like I've just been talking a lot about him over the holiday, and it's a reminder to myself to try harder. Let me talk to Pete Davis about getting him back on the show. Um. Because I, I so enjoyed talking to him, and maybe this time I can get him to turn his camera on. Well, and he, like you told him last time, your mother is a huge fan, and he can't be, he can't go around disappointing your mother. That's just not a thing. <laughs> of course he's going to say yes. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see if I can um, guilt trip him a little bit. Um, look, thank, thank you so much for calling in, Jonathan. Thank you for recommending Clara in the first place. Thank you for, like, I'm, like, quoting your own tweets back to you, not even realizing that your tweets, because that's how... <laughs> Um, useful and influential and knowledgeable and persuasive you are on the timeline. So if you guys don't already follow Jonathan and don't follow his podcast here on Colin and stuff, you're missing out. Thank you, Well, thank you for doing the episode, and thanks for having me up here. Yeah, absolutely. Can't wait to have her back. All right, keep the faith, Jonathan. Bye. Joel, what's on your mind? I'm going to try to get through just a couple of more. I know I said I was going to wrap at 1030, but you know how I get on this. Goddamn app. Oh, yeah. Well, what's on your mind, Joel? Well, I had something that's been eating at me for, and I wanted to ask you for months. So it okay. does relate to tonight. Of, okay. So it's way back to uh, knock down the house episode. Kind of, okay. So it's, I can frame it like this because, I mean, what I like about you is you leave no stern untoned, uh, unturned. Uh, so I feel like I wouldn't be stretched to say, Clara, you know, at the end of the, at the end of the, the line is um, a goal is to try to, share power in this world, right? It's try to, it's try to share the wealth of this world with others. I mean, basically I've never had a satisfaction, uh, satisfactory answer to this, this kind of thing that, um, Kasama did where I quote here, I quote, um, that, that, uh, I pledge to stay accountable to working people by taking only average working wage. She took mm -hmm. half, less than half the wage. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel this applies um, I, you know, so you had on Chris Hedges, Richard Wolf, mm -hmm. and I was mad, mad. I was, I was in, 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 it made me insane. Their answers of, uh, things like, it doesn't matter what shoes you wear. Um, I find it strange. I find, you know, focusing on people's, well, he was talking about wealth, you know, their home given strange, the given Hoss what we Parker have. To yeah. Um, how they dress, where they buy food. I'll be honest. I, I, I like them. I still follow them. I, million with Marianne Williamson too, talking about millionaire, billionaire suffering. I, I find it's it it I don't think this is going away that who okay let me say one more thing I think it's in in a funny way it's the opposite of performative first it feels performative like Kasama saying taking or if let's say a nobody you know some YouTuber says I'm taking 
holding myself to, you know, some medium average wage. At first it feels performative. I find it to be the very opposite of performative. I mean, that money, give the money to something extremely meaningful, you know, mm-hmm. do it very Well, that's crazy. the thing about Shama too. She does, she doesn't just not take the salary. She gives it, she puts it back into socialist alternative and, and there. Yeah. So I, I, I've kind of yeah. rambled here, but um, I, I find, I, I'll just say also, I wonder how many actual, I, I you know, how, wealth changes. Look, I had a friend inherited $80,000 and I was at right in high school. I knew mm-hmm. him intimately. It's so, no, wealth changes people. And even, okay, the last thing, final thing I'll say, and I'll let you go, sorry, is uh, co- being comfortable. I mean, comfortable isn't have to be opulence. Uh, look, mm-hmm. I'm, I, well, to be honest, I, this is not a lie. I make 16,000 a year. I have, I have government aids, uh, work part, but, um, I am comfortable, but, but I also still don't fly above risk, but this, this comfort, you know, I was just, I don't think it's nothing, the, the kind of comfort one has. And it, it, I think it can make people lose a bit of standing on what they say. Uh, of mm-hmm. course, I don't know that go, this can go too far too, because there's a, there's a logistic and a pra- practical element to like, look, I want, I want revolution. I want a you know, peaceful revolution. And I'm not saying this is the end all be all. I just think it's, no one's ever really said, they kind of dismissed it. Some of the people I really respect. And I, I feel like it's like, you know, if not when now, like, okay, do you want this? Some people, I think a lot of people now want this gallant, this want this world where we share power. I mean, we share the wealth of this world. So I don't think it's such a Jesus thing to do this. It's like, you can still have a lot of joy in life with, I don't know what, 80, I mean, 60,000. Anyway, I've rambled, but I yeah. got it all out. Look, I don't so, yeah, so t- two things. So I think that sometimes I'll here, I'll use this as an example. I, we all know uh, my love of uh, dating public interest attorneys. I have had the experience of getting to know people who do very good, important work and who have taken huge pay cuts to do that work. They went to law school, they took out all these loans and they're doing public interest jobs. Okay. And I think it's deeply admirable all of them, because they didn't have to make that choice. However, my observation has also been that many of the people who made that sacrifice have wealthy families or wealthy partners. And so the sacrifice in and of itself needs some more interrogation (laughs) before I give people credit for it, you know? So there are people who are more comfortable and secure without their salary. Like even even Donald Trump said, I'm not going to take my presidential salary, right? So I think sometimes it is authentic and like very meaningful and like awe-inspiring, especially when they put money into, you know, mutual aid or an an organization that's doing good work and stuff like that. And other times where it's just purely performative. Like, so that's just, I just want to put that out there first and foremost. Second of all, you know, I had this conversation with uh, Nathan Robinson years ago on, on my Spooty podcast about what a moral maximum income was and his belief that was, it was something around what he was making at the time from the magazine, which was something like 30, 30 odd thousand dollars a year, 35, $36,000 a year. I think it was, if I recall correctly. And I remember thinking, you know, I was a lawyer at the time making about $200,000 a year and thinking, mm, I don't see how that's going to go. Cause I, I have to pay $2,500 a month in, law, you know, loans. And I live in New York city and my rent is, you know, over $2,000 a month for my studio apartment. And, you know, like, I just, I'm like, you live in, you live in New Orleans and I'm glad that you're able to make that work in New Orleans, but 
you know, it's, it's so situational and it's, you know, what kind of insurance sure. do you have? What are your premiums costing? <laughs> like, what are you, what, what is it that you're willing to sacrifice versus somebody else? Do you have family money that you know you can fall back on if, if push comes to shove and you find out you have to replace a bunch of your molars and an expensive dentist surgery? Like, what, what is going on behind the scenes? And so I, I'm a little torn about this because I, I also felt like some of the Haas and Piker conversation, they were dodging the core question, which to me is less about like how much wealth, like does the fact of Haas and Piker, I mean, I don't mean to like be on his case, but that's just what the subject of the episode was. How much d- does Haas and Piker buying a house necessarily, buying a multimillion dollar house necessarily mean that he cannot have good politics? Or should the question really be, you know, we see him taking stances that we don't necessarily agree with. And how much do we think that is can be attributed to his wealth? And is there a world where somebody is frankly wealthy? I mean, I don't I don't I don't have uh, Chris Hedges W2s, but he's a Princeton professor. He's written a bunch of successful books. I don't think he's hurting for money. Richard Wolf you know, calls in to the show from his lovely uh, West Village apartment down near NYU. You know, so like, I don't think any of these people are hurting for money themselves, but on the whole, we we think that they have good politics and are useful to the movement. So I don't think it's necessarily the case, but you know, that money, you know, especially if you're not like actually a millionaire, but you just, you, you make a good salary, you have a lot of money, but like, you know, still middle-class versus, you know, is it necessarily the case? No, that it ruins you. No, not at that level, I would say. But I think it's very, very warranted for people to be scrutinizing you very, very closely when they know you have a lot of money. And that goes for myself, too. Like when people, you know, call me out for being petit petit bourgeois and all of those things, like I don't get mad. I'm like, yes, I have I am I am in a class position where I might not necessarily come to the right conclusions. And I want people to hold me accountable and responsible so I can like use this platform wisely you know and in the best interest and for people to check me when i need to be checked so i'm never going to be mad at people like asking me do you have that point of view because you have more more money relatively but i don't necessarily think that the second that hassan piker buys like a car it necessarily means he's going to have bad politics i think we can just say oh i think that was a bad take you know what i mean like once the bad take is there it's fair to interrogate whether or not the money had something to do with it yeah. And I, I, I also, I didn't mean to cut you. I was going to say like, no, you know, ahead. there's a difference between somebody, yeah, like, you know, somebody with $500,000 and somebody with 15 million. I mean, yeah, I do admit it's like, there's a, ma- there's a major difference in 50 million, you know, a hundred million. Well, then you get to be where. Yeah. There's <laughs> definitely a number that like, I don't think anybody should have more. <laughs> like, yeah. And I think the number is like way lower than most people think. Yeah. I mean, last thing I'll say is I really liked Kant, and he thought, you know, this like universal was the thing to look for, and like um, treat others as a means to an end, and never as an uh, sorry, an end in themselves, and not as a means to an end. I kind of feel like applies a little bit with like um, this, like I don't know, like you know, people if people were to share their wealth and power. I mean, it's a bit of a, I don't know. Anyway, I don't know. I, I know I just threw that out there, but I'm a philosophy, as a philosophy major. It feels like it feels like at the at the end, like I said in the beginning, it's like. What is this? What is this vision that we think we might be able to get somewhere near? Not utopian, but like, wouldn't it be sharing wealth and the the wealth of literally? You know, look, I think money is it literally is anti-suffering. It's power. Money is power. So I guess this is what's undergirding my my thoughts. Is like, why not now? I get. mm, I I jumped all over. And the other thing is like, 
I guess hypocrisy kills me. Like thoughts and prayers from sort of rich. I guess this is what's also spawning this thought is like thoughts and prayers from rich. Give some money, you know. Yeah. Anyway, there's there's my yeah. last. I mean, look, I also think that the, the problem is that the scarcity mindset makes everybody feel like there's not enough money. And we see this in these, you know, every every six months or so, the New York Times puts out some article about, I make, you know, my wife and I each make $400,000 a year and we're living paycheck to paycheck in Manhattan and everyone gets mad, rightfully so. But like, people have that mentality. Like people, people have this mentality that like, it, when you make more money, you get a bigger footprint, your bills go up, you decide to enroll your kid in the private school that costs $40,000 a year, you decide to get a house with a you know, $10,000 a month mortgage, people make these decisions. And then they, everybody feels like, oh no, this like a disaster could befall me and it's not enough money. And then even people who aren't that rich, not rich enough for the private schools in the house, but who are make four times what the average American makes, let's say someone like who makes $200,000 a year. I mean, I'll speak from experience. I still felt like if I lose my job, which I often felt like I was going to, I, I wasn't going to be able to pay my loans because who else was going to pay a 27 year old? $160,000 a year. Like who, who else was going to pay could I, you know, could me I enough so, to keep up with my loan balance well, so other, than a lawyer, say, other than a law firm? Totally. I mean, so I will say though, that's the kind of thing that I want personally elected officials to feel is actually um, not to float above risk. I, I'll let, I'll, I'm, thanks for yeah, entertaining this I, question. I get that. Really but there's, there's, there's risk. Yeah. There's like, I can't afford my, like my million dollar brownstone risk. Mm -hmm. And then there's like, what if I can't afford health insurance risk? And I, and I would often say oh, yeah. to my friends when I was a lawyer, I would say, I would happily take a $100,000 pay cut if I knew I didn't have these loans and if I could always be insured. Like I would try yeah. to write, I would try to freelance, I would try to do stuff and quit my job if I could have health insurance and a place to live. Yeah. Here, here. Well, th thanks for entertaining my question. You're, uh, yeah, it's so mate. You're listening to you so great. And uh, I, I personally don't think this one's going away. I think there may be more elected people that say, raise their Look, I don't know. I, I think it is consistent with socialism to take uh, uh, some sort of – anyway, that's my opinion. What do you think the Congress members should um, – what do they make now, $175,000 a year? Do you think that they should be giving up more of their salary? And do you think that that's going to hurt someone like AOC who doesn't seem to have a lot of wealth outside of her paycheck as compared to someone like Nancy Pelosi who obviously doesn't need her congressional paycheck? I absolutely think they should uh, – yeah, I mean, aren't they flown around the nation? I mean, they, I think they should uh, absolutely take. I think it would be a huge look. It's, I think it's a huge thing. I mean, to look, they could even do it transparently. They could literally take screenshots. I don't know. I mean, like to, it means a lot to me. I guess I don't know why it doesn't mean a lot to others. It means a ton to me that Kasama did does this, and then Ada Kalau of Barcelona did this. A few people have done this. It, it is I mean, okay. Look, it's not not about you or something, but um. I, I look at I look very intimately up who I follow, what their net worth is. I try to figure that out, and it it colors my. I mean, I I start to lose trust in certain people. Okay, but don't believe the internet. I'm not worth one to five million dollars. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I didn't think numbers. so. I, <laughs> no, but you know, it's 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 not nothing. It's actually, you know, it's anecdotal. But geez, I you know I, I knew a guy once. He was see, um personally. I was on the ground floor of a weed operation and he was worth 250 million. He was the mm. worst human I've ever met. He wore like a sweater around his neck and he was like a, a like an actual cliche prick. And for me, there's a direct correlation. 
in my whole life, I've never seen a break from this with the wealthy and the out of touch, even just kindness and opening doors and shit. Anyway, that's Mm. my, I I don't, I haven't yet been, I haven't yet been, uh, I haven't yet seen the other, other, I don't know. Anyway, I trailed off. Look, I do think, so this is going to, I don't know, maybe this sounds out of touch. You tell me. But my understanding is that so people, these Congress members, they have to have a house in D.C. and a house in wherever they're from. And if you're from somewhere that's expensive like New York, that means that you're paying, you know, um, you know, two to three thousand dollars in rent in two cities now. Yeah. So if you're paying, let's average it out to five thousand dollars a month. By the way, that would be two small apartments in both of those places. Like that would be two, maybe one bedroom in DC, but definitely a studio in New York. Um, depending on where you live, obviously. So let's just pretend you're paying $5,000 total for rent for 12 months. So that's $60,000 a year right off the bat. That's going to you living somewhere. And that's assuming that you don't have a family, you don't need a bigger house, all that kind of stuff. Not to mention, you know, you know, the security implications, like, are you going to want to live on a, on a walk up when you're AOC? No, you're going to want to live in a doorman building, you know, all of those kinds of things. Um, so, you know, I, I, I'm a little concerned about whether or not it would disincentivize Like Cori Bush was talking about this when she got elected, like she didn't have enough money on hand to even like get to DC and like, she struggled to get, get a wardrobe. Well, yeah. So, like, I don't want to disincentive as much as we're frustrated with the squad. Like, I'm a little concerned about disincentivizing people who don't have a lot of money and end up getting into Congress from trying because yeah. it's already such a lift to get elected when you don't have millions of dollars of your own and like your parents' friends to call up to give to you. Yeah. Um, to make it even harder once you get in to survive. But like, I also do appreciate that there is a limit. Like, why are we? Ha- why is it even a debate that they shouldn't um, be able to trade stocks? Like, why is Nancy Pelosi able to go from being, like, worth $9 million to being worth, like, $200 million over the course of her 30-year career? Excuse me. I'm making up those numbers. Don't quote me on those numbers. But she's had exponential wealth growth while in Congress. Like, to me, like, once we're getting over $500,000 a million, my personal belief, my hot take is that no one needs more than $400,000 a year. Like oh my God, yeah. point blank period. I know, I know that sounds high to you, like to a, to a lot of people. And it is high. It is high. But there are so many people that make more than that. Yeah. And the gap between the people who are making $400,000 a year and the people who are making like billions of dollars a year is so exponential that like Elon Musk should be, can live a very, very happy Lux life on $400,000 a year in any city in the world. That's just true. So like needing to be a billion, needing to have multiple millions of dollars, needing to be a billionaire. That's insane to me. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's, and that's where the money should come from. I guess I do. That's, I mean, that's where the, that's, they have the onus, although they're not going to do shit that the onus is on them. I mean, the onus is on the what four richest or 50 richest. The the funny thing is though, the onus shifts in my opinion, because they're not going to do shit to those that will do something. It's a funny thing. So yeah, I, I do find myself saying sometimes like, well, I don't know. I, you know what? I, I trailed off again. I, I don't know. I'm not, I still think that, uh, I think it's, I think it's coming. I know that's crazily optimistic. I think this may be a thing where, I don't know. I think this might be a bit of a, uh, almost like a, once again, I don't think it's some massive thing. I'll be honest, to be honest, I think it's just basic decency to hold oneself to some sort of non-opulent wage in this world. I mean, look at it. We're getting to the place in the movie where it's like, 
the world's going to collapse. So it's a, if not, you know, if, if who's going to, who's, who's going to take the sacrifice for this world? The rich aren't. So in, in my opinion, it's like, wh- when are we, what are we, you know, what are well-meaning people waiting for? I, I don't see the, I, anyway. All right. I'll, I'll go. I'll go. But, Look, uh, I appreciate you calling in, Joel. This has been interesting. All right. Well, I, I so appreciate talking to you. You're brilliant. It's, uh, it's really fun to talk to you. Anyway, thanks a lot. Have a great night. Same, same here, Joel. This has been a good time. To keep the faith. All right. I saw a request in chat for Shelly, so I'm bringing up Shelly. Shelly, thank your benefactors in the chat. Oh, Lord. (laughs) Now I have so much pressure. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? What's on your mind tonight? I'm I'm doing super good. Um, Interview with Clara was uh, really, really great. I mean, it was really great. She she managed to pack a really dense conversation down, you know, so. <laughs> this I, cat is I really cracking pre- me up. I'm sorry, Shelly. You what? Is there a cat in the background? Yeah, that's that's my old cat. It's, <laughs> he wants pets and he's yelling. LOL. I'm sorry. <laughs> go ahead. I, I just, I, no, that's anyway. just cracking me up. Yeah, I know. He's, he, whenever he wants to sound whiny, he's incredibly loud and he's definitely being whiny <laughs> Um, but anyway, so Thanksgiving was good. You got to see your family and stuff. Yes, it was, it was good. I won't say relaxing, but it was good. Yeah. Well, traveling and all that stuff is never relaxing, obviously, especially when you're getting home from the traveling sucks, man. Yeah, it really seriously does. Okay. Let me walk away from the cat because I can't even hear you. (laughs) (laughs) No, the cat is fine. I just had to get my chuckles out. Yeah, I know, but I can't even hear because I'm just like, do you need food? Do you need pets? What do you need? Um, no, I, it was really good. I did kind of wish that you guys had kind of talked more about like the fascism part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just because I do feel like that was kind of like, kind of like an important part of sort of like her thesis and it didn't really get discussed that much. And so I was kind of wondering like, did, what were your thoughts on it? At least from what it was that you kind of gleaned from her. Yeah. So, I mean, so one, like I said, like, I do think that there's a lot to get out of the macaroni and cheese article, uh, sorry, podcast. And we had a hard out was the issue. So we couldn't like, we had a hard stop and we just had to hard stop. But like I told her, I hope that she is able to come back and we can get more into that. But, you know, I think Jonathan brought this up the way that um, she walks through uh, how laudatory America was of all of these fascistic regimes, uh, including Mussolini lauding, you know, be- you know, before it became uncool to like the fascists lauding the economic tools they were using to suppress and control the population and very explicitly saying, you know, good job. This is what has to be done. You have to suppress labor. The problem is all of these, you know, um, you know, uh, Italian workers who are, in the streets and who are advocating for more and who are trying to do all of these kind of collective enterprises. There was this very conscious affirmative effort to say that if you actually want to stay in power and if you want to have control, these people have to be suffering and these people have to be disempowered. And it is damning. Like for all of the talk about fascism Mm -hmm. from liberals right now, it is incredibly damning to see the ways that their kind of ideological forebearers were courting it and are still using some of the same tools today that were used for people who we more explicitly understand as fascists. So I, I do think that's an important part and I regret not getting more into that. And I hope she's well, able yeah, to do there, the circuit. There was, 
there was just a whole lot. And I feel like also for like the first maybe 30 minutes of the interview, she was trying to do like the standard, like she's trying to get her thesis out, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until you sort of like played the Obama clip that it was like, no, 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 this isn't, this isn't just an economic lecture. This is Mm -hmm. just, this is a conversation, you know? And, and then I, I felt like, like the conversation was a lot easier. Like she didn't feel the pressure of giving a thesis, like an economic thesis, you know? Yeah. Like I love a guest Um, who's willing to just explain their book without me having to do all the problems. I I appreciate them laying it out a little bit, but then, yeah, I want to move on from that because you're certain, you know, you'll hear that on every interview that she'll give. And then she's other interviews that I actually, you know, I obviously watched in preparation and like, you can get the spiel other places. I want, I want folks to be getting something different out of these bad faith interviews. Yeah. And I thought she was especially cute because she's obviously so proud of her first published book that like every single time you're like, oh yeah, your book. And she's like the capital orange. She's like, holds it up. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's so pub- this publicist telling her to do that. And she's doing yeah. a good job she's supposed to be doing. Yeah. She, she was, she was super cute. I really, I really liked her. She she was a delight. But like, as far as like the whole fascism thing goes is, I feel like people, it's just, we just say fascist. Right now, we just say fascist. Oh, that's fascist. Like this thing is fascist over here. This person's a fascist. Red Brown Alliance, mm-hmm. you know, we name it. But it's kind of like sort of what we were talking about whenever you're talking about the methods of imperialism mm-hmm. and how what it's kind of morphed into is not always like boots on the ground or anything mm-hmm. like that. It's it's these policies that you enact from the IMF, like all these other types of mm-hmm. things that can break down a country and do whatever. And those are just the economic tools, mm-hmm. you know? And so I feel like mm-hmm. people often view fascism as an aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's not an aesthetic. It's, it's what occurs whenever capitalism is in crisis, all capitalism, if they cannot squelch it with an FDR like policy to sate the masses, mm-hmm. then they will turn to authoritarian policies to subdue the masses. Yeah. And that's what fascism is. I think that's, I think that's right on. I don't know. What do you think would have happened if Bernie had framed it that way? You know, the rise of Trump, everyone's so afraid. Here are your options. Your off ramps are, and you know, new steel, new, new deal style, um, half measures, you know, to, to release the, the pressure valve or full on fascism. And there's no getting around it and characterizing what the Democrats have in store as fascism as well. I don't think that he would, I, I think that he, if, it, if he had been able to drill down to it and try and to attempt to deliver that message, it would have fallen on deaf ears because one of the things that Americans are uniquely terrible at is their own history. Yeah. Um, I mean, look, he, he gave that big socialism speech, which it was, I remember feeling funny about that because as much as I wanted him to like kind of own some of that. I remember watching that speech and thinking, I don't know that that is exactly the way that, like if I'm going to dedicate an hour long to, to something that was new, that wasn't just a stump speech. I don't, I don't know. I think that there were opportunities to bring it more into the present than just to kind of walk through, you know, the kind of the FDR history and to make it more of a critique of where the democratic party is now. And then moreover, once he made the socialism speech, this is like the summer of 2019, he completely backed off of it. And we on the campaign weren't allowed to talk about it anymore. Absolutely. So I don't know. Like I, 
we could all just wish cast and dream about what would have happened if Bernie had done different kinds of things, but it did feel like a real educational opportunity if nothing else. And, you know, it would have been, there's so many wonderful themes and there's so many people who wanted to help him with this stuff too. All of these like scholars and academics that were like, here's what you should say, but there just wasn't, I don't know. It felt like it was so difficult to get anything other than the stump speech read. And there was so much, I don't know. There were so many people pulling in different directions. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, and but but kind of what I was kind of what you were asking about, like if he had been able to articulate that message, would that have mm. gone anywhere? I, you know, I don't know. Maybe if people had bothered to kind of like dig into it and look, like maybe they'd be like, oh, okay. Maybe kind of, but like FDR routinely bragged about, I saved capitalism from pitchforks because it's right, just kind I, of like I'm thinking of Brady saying Biden is a fascist. That gets headlines. No one can ignore oh, that. Biden. Oh, Biden. Oh, oh, okay. Well, you know, that's what I'm saying about bringing it into the present, not just like once upon a time there was fascism, you know, like, because that's, that's how the, that's how the FDR speech went. It was basically like the speech version of Norman Rockwell's like uh, freedom of want painting series. You know, it was just, you know, which is, which is great. It was, was so much more than anything anybody else was doing or whatever do, but like the whole issue, like you need to connect it to the present and like not it's, it shouldn't be so much about like explaining the words socialism and more about just like saying what the problem is and that's what was so powerful in 2016 about his critiques of hillary clinton he didn't say uh hillary clinton is a capitalist and i'm a socialist and this is why socialism is good and fdr said this right. he said hillary clinton is corrupt the system is corrupt she right. she is friends with the banks. she takes money from the banks like this is what she this is who she wants to be running our country and you don't need to say you know, plutocracy, you just did it. You just described the plutocracy and put a face yeah. on it and pointed to her behaviors and, also, and people understood it. Can we please just start using Mussolini, who essentially was the first fascist dictator, and whenever he was trying to explain what fascism was, he said it's the merger of corporations and the state. Yeah. That is capitalism. That is how your democracy is bought and sold. Corporations fund candidates. They absolutely just on your airwaves, on your TVs, they will push every single amount of propaganda they can to convince you of what is right and wrong. And they don't have to, like, they have it down to such a science, they don't have to come in with brown shirts and knock you over the head. You just... People just watch their TV and they go, I like what they said in that 20 minute second, mm-hmm. in like, in that 20 minute segment. I mean, I, li- I live in the South, so this is constantly what I get, like just the dumb accents and, you know, all that stuff. Kind of explaining not, why people not are super all right Southern people. <laughs> not all Southern right. accents. <laughs> right. Not all Southern yeah. accents. Southern accents, lives matter. I don't know. Don't do that. That's, <laughs> that's not a good thing. Um, but I mean, you kind of, you kind of see what I'm saying about that. It's just like, they always attribute like this. It's always like the stupidity of common people Yeah. where they really don't think, I mean, they really do think that they're tricking us. And then they, then they kind of wonder why it is that we don't fall for it. And then they run all these other campaigns in the background to try to convince us that we're wrong, even though we know we're yeah, right. Yeah, no, I, I don't think that, I think everyone gets it. I think that yeah. even disengaged, whatever, con- conservative people in the South, whatever it is, 
I don't think they're confused about corruption. They loved when Donald Trump said, drain the swamp. No one's confused. No one doesn't get it. But they're not offered up any alternative. So you get some, you get Donald Trump saying they're halfway the right things. And that's better than Hillary Clinton saying 100% of the wrong things. And that's all there is to it. It doesn't matter if Donald Trump is in bad faith. You know, they can even see that he's operating in bad faith. But what are they going to do? Vote for the one who's not even going to care about them enough to lie to them? I mean, like, it, it's completely understandable. That's why I see all of this stuff happening before our eyes and the realignment happening before our eyes. And it's terrifying because I hear people talk and I, I have a lot more like I don't I'm not going to give the soundbite that's going to get me canceled. But like the things that people are saying make sense. The conclusions that they draw that the, what they want to do with that energy is not what I would do with that energy. But without right. any understanding or knowledge of there being a left path, I don't, you know, I don't think that they're stupid for taking the right path. They're just looking to throw a monkey wrench in this, the machinery. I think that's yeah. a little bit what's going on with Donald, with um, Kanye West and a lot of these people who are flailing around making very bad decisions because mm-hmm. they know that the status quo doesn't work. And they're just looking for something to validate their feeling that the status quo isn't working, including <laughs> white supremacists. But that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> right. But I, I, I would yeah. have to say, I would mm-hmm. feel like, because I see the Democrats and the Republicans as being classical liberals. They're all liberals to me. All of them are. They mm-hmm. have the same foundational principle of how it is that the mode of production should be organized in the society. And all of the politics is based on that. And I don't care what it is that culturally it is that they're talking about. They're both sort of advancing the same thing. But I would have to say how I feel like this is going and the reason why the right keeps calling Biden a fascist or something like that is because typically whenever the, the like whenever you have the right wing of liberalism use fascism because fascism is a function of liberalism. It is not a separate ideology. It degenerates into fascism if capitalism is in crisis. So the right wing, what they do is they get out there, they knock heads and they kill people. Now, the left wing, they will try to do everything it is that they can in their power to stop the right wing from coming in there and cracking heads. They'll try. Normally, they fail. And that's whenever you get the shock troops and all those type of stuff. So that's more of the right leaning thing. The left leaning thing, the left leaning version or liberal leaning version of fascism is censorship, control, taking away people's ability to speak, like all that other type of stuff. And in that case, then Biden's absolutely definitely a fascist. Yeah, but you see, even our bet, like, you know, I love Cornell West, but he wasn't really willing to go there and call Biden a fascist. And look, the conservatives have been doing a better job of naming the enemy since Trump. Mm-hmm. Bernie was in here doing a good job. He named the enemy better in 2016 than 2020. But liberals aren't naming any en- enemy other than like the abstraction of fascism. Some some yeah. dude that had horns on his head on 16th. Donald Trump. Like those aren't th- for for the for the the side of the aisle that like really embraced the idea of systemic issues, systemic problems, systemic change. Like they don't have a systemic enemy. They don't. Yes. Nope. They they think that if it's just people to judge or someone real smart gets in there and just like works out the kinks, 
then that's that's the issue that we don't have enough like big brains handling the bureaucracy. And that's yeah, the problem that's because people know that there is an enemy and they want to root for a party that is going to go after them. Yep. And, and that's literally what Democrats do. They can't name an enemy because they're on the same side. Yeah, they are. They are the, the call is coming from inside the house. <laughs> exactly. And so Democrats just flail around and they just point to like random things. and Everyone goes like, that doesn't really have an impact on my life. I don't feel that. That seems kind of like bullshit. And they go, why aren't people voting for us? Like, why don't people care? Yeah. Um, anyway, I was just going to say, I think it would be interesting if you ever wanted to have uh, Clara back on and maybe have a conversation where there wasn't like a hard out, mm-hmm. then I would suggest pairing her with Gabriel Rockhill, who Rockhill. does really good work on just like the ideology of fascism in general, and then tied with her sort of economic knowledge of the past, I think that would be a really good duo for you to have like maybe a conversation about just like fascism in general, if you think that might be interesting. That sounds interesting. I, I'll take the note and I'll look up Gabriel Ruckhill um, yeah. for next time. Thank you, Shelly. Yeah, I appreciate you calling in. He's super brilliant. And thank you. And so glad to talk and see everyone. And thank you for my benefactors and the audience team. I know. <laughs> All right. Bye. Keep the faith, Shelly. Bye. All right, guys. I am going to get myself together and try to get into bed at a reasonable hour and read something about what the heck I'm supposed to talk about on Rising tomorrow morning. But this has been a good call. Short and sweet got a lot of people in i'll see the rest of you on thursday god knows what we'll be talking about because i am behind scheduling episodes but i'm sure it'll be good take care and keep the faith Yeah.